This week on Tech Radio, new toys from Microsoft and Amazon. Hi, I'm Artemis. I am a computer-generated AI voice, and you're listening to Tech Radio. Every week online and on air with RT Radio, we bring you the very latest in tech. You're welcome to episode 988. This week, we're talking deep fakes, which are getting more convincing with Connor Lenehan at Lero. We also find out about Amazon's huge new center in Dublin. Say congrats to some Irish scientists taking over Europe and ask, would you pay for X? This is Tech Radio with Dusty Rhodes and Niall Kitson. Joining us as always is our editor-in-chief, Niall Kitson. Now, you wrote the headline, Would You Pay for X? I'm, you've got a seedy side to your mind. I wish, would you please just rein that back in, please? Yeah, well, you know, straight, straight after I, I did rein myself in and go, LOL. <laughs> and, you know, just... <laughs> did you really? You were still saying LOL. Niall, that's yeah, a lot. <laughs> that, that's it. You know, this anyway, is a family show after all. Come on, let's talk about in the Elon sense Musk. that we're family at this stage, you know. There you go, <laughs> go, bro. <laughs> What's the story with Elon Musk? Does he really want to charge for access to Twitter, formerly known okay, as X? I mean, right. X, formerly known as Twitter. Yeah, he. I'm, personally, I think this is a little bit of kite flying. He was in Israel uh, meeting with Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, and they were talking about you know uh, anti-Semitism and hate speech flourishing on X at the moment and what to do about it. Um, Musk said, "Look, we've got a huge problem with bots. They cost a you know a couple of cents to set up, and they're just flooding the platform, and it's you know it's it's not doing us any good." So one of the uh, best ways he reckons to get rid of the bot problem is to start charging for use of the platform. To which uh, you might think, well, okay, that's a fairly common sense uh, solution if you actually had pro- a product worth paying for. Um, or, hear me out on this, invest in some content moderators and keep it free. I don't go on Twitter very often, but when I do, I couldn't agree with you more about it needing content moderators. But at the same time, it's just, it's, how can you get that? That's like, that's like content, content moderate the dump. Well, it's, yeah. What Musk has done is take away all the character Twitter had, all the things that made it, for want of a better word, fun. And in the absence of moderation, it has just become this sort of free for all this, you know, uh, you know, the the great idea of free speech absolutism. Well, do you know what? It's it doesn't work. (laughs) You're just going to get people using the website in bad faith, uh, which is what has happened. And, you know, there is the uh, what is it? X premium tier that you can sign up for, which just seems to be kind of a a sign that you're a fanboy or somebody you know, with trenchant political beliefs that you really have to share with the world. Um, it's not something I'm interested in. It's not something a lot of people are interested in. Bear in mind that Musk spent, what was it, $42 billion for X, tried to get out of it. Uh, the shareholders went, you knew, it's yours now. And uh, has proceeded to, you know, downsize and strip away all the operations element of it. It doesn't even have a PR department. So if there's a problem, you can't contact X and go, you know, what's going on here? Because there's nobody to call. There's nobody there. There's nobody to give their side of the story. 
It's it's just it's just Musk. Uh, it's just whatever he says in the media. So they do have a huge problem with bots. They do have a huge problem with hate speech. Uh, they do have a huge problem in that there is literally nobody minding the house. Um, charging people to use X, I think, will expose the number of bots and you know do a massive you know um, call of bots that are out there. Uh, same time, it's still going to be a free for all for hate speech. There, you know, if you're a human with fairly reprehensible views, have at it, go for it. Uh, if you want to spout any kind of nonsense, any kind of conspiracy theory, whatever, go for it. You know, it's it's just all about getting rid of that automated element, that sort of those kind of automated misinformation campaigns or accounts operated in bad faith that are just totally disposable. So will people want to charge for X? No. Because the only reason X can become profitable, bearing in mind that it is not, is to keep those engagement figures up. And you won't have engagement if you don't have users. And what do users stick around for on X? To be annoyed, be angry. That's that's that dopamine hit right there. They log on to X to be angry. And that's pretty much it. So will we will we be paying for X anytime soon? No, Imhoe. So if I ask you... <laughs> <laughs> so the official answer from the editor of Tech Chance Central, would you pay for X? Your answer is mihole. Well, I said imho, but <laughs> if you want to if you want to substitute <laughs> That's what I heard. So there you go. So then now we're both got dirty, filthy minds. Let's get out of the gutter and into Amazon. They had a a huge uh, announcement this week. The the bit that made me laugh the most, right, was it was a very dry presentation, the entire thing, all right? Uh, And the the audience are just kind of sitting there quietly watching. It was like, you know, kind of a drama at the the gate or the abbey or something like that, like, you know? Um, There was no reaction to to what they were saying. And at the end of it, uh, the guy who was, you know, leading the presentation went, and thanks for joining us today. It's been fun. (laughs) No, no, I think you'll find... <laughs> no, on mature recollection. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But ne- listen, nevertheless, uh, Amazon did have some good stuff that they uh, announced. Uh, three things in particular that caught my uh, attention was with the explosion of AI, of course. I mean, we didn't have the AI thing this time last year. Uh, and they have been working out with AI and Alexa. And now they're hoping that Alexa will be able to do a lot more regular chat. So one of the immediate differences will be that you don't have to constantly say the wake word every time that you start a sentence, which uh, you've had to do up until now. Uh, And then also they're trying to make it so that it's more, you know, kind of so you'd say the wake word and you go, you'd ask a question and then you can ask a follow up question as if it's just a conversation. They tried this once or twice within the uh, uh, presentation and there were some hiccups as happens. Uh, but I think it's a good start and I think it will get uh, better as we go along. And the same will happen with Siri and the same will happen with with Google and so on down yeah, the line. And, and there is a similar project being done in Ireland at the Adapt Centre. It was called Adele, uh, which was kind of a That's next generation right. digital personal yes. assistant, if you remember. Another thing that they did and I thought was interesting, um, I'm just kind of at that stage in my life now where you've got parents who are, are getting a bit doddery 
and they're introducing a thing in the States anyway with Alexa and it's called Emergency Assist. And if you've got one of these speakers in your house, and it's a great idea, um, is like you can just call Help Me. All right. And then somebody will come on the speaker and say, hello, are you OK? Now, I think there are private services already offering this in Ireland, from what I remember with my father-in-law. Um, and then there are little things you can wear, like a watch or whatever. You can press a button. But, at the, you know, kind of Amazon are bringing in their own their own version of it, which I thought was good, mainly because of the prevalence of um, Alexa speakers that are in homes everywhere. Yeah. Because we've had things like fall detection uh, for quite a while. But to have uh, a speaker with that sort of, uh, you know, something we're used to using already, uh, yeah, I think it's a good addition. Exactly. You know, you just call out. Uh, And then the last thing that kind of caught my attention before I move on to the Amazon and Dublin story is uh, the Echo Show. So they've got the Echo Show 5, they've got the Echo Show 8 was the one that they were really going on about. Uh, What they've done is they've done an adaptive screen. And I kind of like this. And then uh, they don't really. All right. And the essential thing of it is if it's showing you the weather, if you are close to the screen, it will show you detail, like, you know, what's going to happen hour by hour or whatever it happens to be. But then if you are far away on the far side of the room, it will just show you a big sunshine or cloud and then a big number for the, whatever the temperature is. Right. So it adapts itself as to how close or how far away you are from you, which I kind of thought was clever. But then I was thinking, that means it's watching me all the time to see where well, I am. Well, no, I mean, that that's motion sensor stuff. But the thing is... It's making the assumption that you want more detail when you're near it. Uh, sometimes you don't. Probably a lot of the time you don't. I just yeah, want to know, the, is in, it going in to this rain? darn country, yeah, exactly. You don't need to know. Is it, <laughs> is it going I to rain? I to get away from it. And there's this Echo Show 8 saying, hey, guess what? Yeah. It's raining. Uh, yeah. I don't care about the humidity. Actually, when I look at the weather app on my iPhone, there's only two things I want to know because I can look out the window and figure out if it's going to rain. What, yeah. It's basically, what is the temperature? But most importantly, what does it feel like? Ah. It's the only yeah, thing I care about. One. That's a good one. I never, I normally just want to know is when is the rain going to stop or when is the rain going to start? They're, 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 that's really the number one question, isn't it? Like, you know, what temperature the rain is, don't care. Anyways, mm. uh, let's yep. move on to Amazon Web Services. A big story. Very interesting story, this actually. Because after a number of years and lots of objections, uh, Amazon Web Services have been granted permission to build three new data centres in North Dublin. Yeah, three data centres. Now, earlier this year, we'd been hearing an awful lot about a moratorium on data centres that, you know, okay, we've got about 100. This is it. Um, Given the precariousness of the power grid, um, given the fact that 18% of all the power in Ireland is consumed by data centers. And it's crazy. Like all the households in Ireland take up nine. Just think about, you know, that data centers, a hundred of them take up twice the energy of residential properties in this country. Of all homes in the country. All homes. From Donegal to Dublin to Douglas. Yeah, that that is a terrifying statistic when you think about it because... Our grid was built to look after houses, wasn't built to look after these giant data centers, um, which, you know, according to the political class, are essential to our development um, as a uh, as an economy. You know, we are a digital economy. All the big tech giants are here. Why wouldn't AWS want to set up more data centers here? Uh, from a business perspective, yeah, fine. But which bit of extinction level of event 
is is hard for these people to process. Um, so it looks like, yeah, three data centres across Blanchardstown and Finglas. So that's Fingal County Council said yes, um, despite... Uh, I thought Fingal County Council came up with a nice idea, actually, because one of the conditions of them, speaking of power, right, because they do use an enormous amount of power. They said that one of the uh, conditions is that Amazon Web Services must generate more renewable energy in Ireland than it is using in those three data centres. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'll accept that. I'll accept that as a as a condition. And we have heard in the past about microgrids, um, which are basically, you know, keep the data centre uh, disconnected from the regular grid and just have their own sort of power set up, whether it, it happens to be solar or wind energy or something like that, just have it completely removed from the grid. And there's a lot to be said for that. Uh, because it means that you're not uh, you're not reliant on national infrastructure that potentially, you know, potentially could be a security risk. Now you're delving into conspiracy theories. I don't think so. Which we, we that that's a rabbit hole we could go down in, but not today. <laughs> okay, but I think from a security perspective, there's there's a lot to be said for microgrids, uh, and you know you also get to customize your grid as well. So from the get go. You could just rely on renewable energy. Um, we've also seen interesting uh, experiments with the heat generated by data centers being pumped into uh, being pumped into buildings as a, a heating solution. Um, I think if we see more innovation like that, um, okay, I think people will more likely maybe not get on board, but reduce the level of position they have to these things. Uh, on the surface, I mean, given the amount of discussion, debate and worry about data centres in Ireland, the fact that they're on a grid that is not meant for them. Um, I think it is a disappointing decision, but I look forward to seeing the kind of technological innovations that come about through their powering. That's a okay. diplomatic answer. That's a very diplomatic answer. I'm not getting into a row with you. Seems we're bros and owl now. Family. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's talk about uh, something that's happening actually today today is in we record the podcast on a Thursday so that is ready for you uh, to listen to first thing on a, on a Friday morning so uh, later on today Thursday after we finish recording we're going to have the new Microsoft event now we'll have details and everything on the website at techcentral.ie because we'll be updating that as it happens uh, but for now what are, what, what, what are we expecting this is going to be an interesting game of well here's what we're expecting the, the time people are listening, uh, yeah. go, that's not what happened. <laughs> or maybe, well, or uh, maybe they'll go, "You're amazing. You're you're a savant. You you knew everything." Yeah. Well, let's look at one thing we definitely do know that's uh, that's happening, and that's uh, this will be the last presentation done by Panos Panay, the um, head of devices for Microsoft, because he is uh, he's moving, he's leaving uh, the role. So I always quite enjoyed his presentations because he he was always so earnest. He really believed in these products. Um, and he just had sort of a, a refreshing, well, I don't want to say refreshing honesty, but, you know, for as much as he was on script, you could tell he believed in these things. Um, like you remember a couple of years ago with the Courier. Do you remember Microsoft's Courier? It was meant to be sort of, you know, a dual screen tablet um, kind of based on handwriting, and that, that was kind of the the model they wanted, just to use a uh, a stylus and work around everything with it. Um, and the product was canned. But I remember 
him being able to sell it to to the audience, you know, uh, going, look, you'll be able to do this and this and this and this. And everybody was like, wow, brilliant. And then sort of in the cold light of day, it had to be canned. It just, it wasn't going to work. But uh, that just showed, you know, the measure of the man, you know, he, he, he is able to sell things in a very uh, genuine way. So what can we expect? Well, uh, it looks like uh, we are going to see a refresh of the Surface Laptop Studio uh, and the Surface Pro. Now, what we have to look for is the kind of chips that are being used in these devices, because as we know, we're still in the middle of a chip shortage. Um, so we're going to have to see uh, which companies uh, Microsoft is working with on this. Is it, is it going to be Qualcomm chips? Is it going to be ARM? Is it going to be Intel? Um, apparently, uh, we're looking at Intel and ARM. Um, and it's kind of the usual suspects, really, when it comes to, um, sorry, it looks like it'll be Intel and Qualcomm. Um, but the issue with Qualcomm chips is that they won't be coming out until next year. So we're either going to have uh, an Intel exclusive Surface Pro 10 uh, or we're going to have, uh, you know, a, a delayed release. Um, so that's kind of a, kind of an interesting, um, I would say, dilemma, if you will. Uh, and apparently we're going to see more integration with Windows 11. Personally, um, I don't I don't really use I don't really feel the benefit of Windows 11, even though I have a, a hybrid laptop. Uh, I mean, it's very nice, the fact that I can fold it around and I get a proper sized keyboard uh, to work with it. Uh, I think that's pretty cool. I think that's quite a useful feature. Um, and the multitasking is great to have as well. Don't really use it, but it's there. Um, I, always, I always maintain that the Surface Pro is probably Microsoft's best piece of hardware at the moment, excluding the Xbox. That's on its own sort of continent as, as far as I'm concerned. But the uh, Surface Pro has always been a very impressive bit of kit from ever since the launch of the Surface Pro 3. That really set the, set the benchmark and it's just been refinements on that since then. Uh, I know, Dusty, Surface Pro 3 Plus, well, what, what do you reckon? I know you're a fan. I'm not particularly a fan because I, I like a laptop. I like something that was built as a laptop. And the Surface Pro is kind of looks like a tablet with a bit of a, a keyboard attached to it. Which it is. Um, yep. Yeah, exactly. And it looks just a little bit flimsy from that from that side. Um, but I, I do listen to you and you say it's a phenomenal piece of kit and it's really solid and, and it works for you. But, and you're probably a lot more mobile in your work uh, than I would be. So maybe there's there's a little difference in there as well. Like, you know, yeah. um, uh, I but, would say the Laptop Studio 2, uh, mm. if and when we see it, mm. um, the Laptop Studio, uh, Surface Laptop Studio, if you will, um, is also a very nice piece of equipment, um, but it is quite expensive. Um, yeah. So, you know, they, they're competing at, at Apple premium level. Well, they really um, are. Like, if you want anything like that, I mean, I'm using the, when I'm out, I use the Samsung Book 2 is the one that I have at the moment. Okay. So same thing as yourself. It kind of flips over 360. Uh, it's touchscreen. It's got pen input and all that kind of stuff. You can just use it as a laptop. And of course, like everything else, like, you know, I don't use any of those fancy features. I just use it like a laptop. But anyway, there you go. Um, but I find it's very light. Uh, it's way up there with the MacBook Air. I think it's cheaper than the MacBook Air. Uh, and I just find Windows interacts with the rest of the world a lot better than uh, my Mac OS does uh, for general office and, and web and whatever else. Like, like, you know, but that's just my opinion. Um, 
But you are, you, I mean, if you want a nice, slim laptop that's going to have enough oomph to be able to do all of the things you need to do, you're going to be spending 1200 quid and north. And north, yeah. yeah. Increasingly yeah. on north. Yeah. Uh, and, and it used to be a case where, you know, kind of you could get a really nice laptop for 800 quid, but now you're kind of getting, eh, it's a bit big, it's a bit chunky, it's a bit plasticky, do you know what I mean? Yeah, so, um, the build the build quality is increasingly erratic uh, out there. There, for uh, as many and well established as there are brands, when you go into a shop um, and you just want to see what's out there, um, build quality it can be no, very it, it, it's, very it's flimsy terrible. indeed. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I mean, there are there are some standards: the Dell X, XPS, uh, the Samsung, the MacBook Air all amazing machines and all very durable machines and very light machines and very thin machines as well. Like, you know, so that's the kind of, that's the level I would be looking at. If I was buying for a kid, I would be in the, I'd be in the bargain basement <laughs> where the Chinese knockoffs and stuff like that. Well, I, I have to say, I'm using curries. a HP Envy uh, laptop yes. at the moment. Yeah. Um, and I got an awful lot of machine for my money. And you know what? I didn't spend that much. Um, so there is there is quality out there to be had. Yeah. Um, but few and far between. Thing thing I found was I needed to get a, a cheap and cheerful laptop, let's put it that way, um, to replace for somebody else in the family, right? So I wasn't going to spend a, a, a fortune on it. But I went on to, uh, I went with Backmarket actually. Uh, and I bought a laptop there and I got, I think it was a Dell. But what I was looking for was the pro the processor was how many cores are in the processor was what I was looking for. I was looking for something with 16 gigs of RAM. All right. Because anything with four gigs of RAM, just forget it. All right. Eight gigs seems to be the standard. And that's what worries me because it's kind of, it's just enough. Right. But I got this uh, machine. It's, I think it's three years old. It's got 16 gigs of RAM and it's got a whatever X core. Uh, it rocks along. It's not that thin, light, whatever, but the person using it just uses it on, on, on desk all day, every day. And it absolutely powers along and I'm delighted. And it cost, I think it was three, 350 quid or something like that. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, that's, that's, that's what I'm saying. It all depends on the case or, or sorry, the use case is what I, sh I should say. Uh, and like, if you're sending kids, you know, to school or even students to college, do you know what I mean? Get one of those darn things. Yeah. Know? That's our yeah. look into it anyway, like, you know, and then the other thing is you're helping to save the planet by reusing stuff as well. So yeah, there is yep. that whole side of things. And I have to say with Backmarket, uh, the the people who work with Backmarket, uh, they really do clean up the machines and they check the batteries and there's a guarantee on the battery level, uh, especially with their smartphones. They've just bought a smartphone, which is going to be delivered at the weekend. So we'll see how that is. God, I, do you know what it is? I really need. I'm, what's what's the tech equivalent of Alcoholics Anonymous? Hi, I'm Dusty. <laughs> I'm a gadget. <laughs> Please, make it's me called stop your bank account. Money. When, oh, when right. that's gone, <laughs> that's that's your limit. That's what does it. Listen, uh, uh, getting away from Microsoft and laptops and what they're going to be announcing uh, this this week, which I, again, as I say, is on TechCentral.ie. The details. Um, there's a rumor they're going to buy Nintendo. Is this true? Ah, well, you know, rumor slash, um, you know, internal discussions. Uh, this comes from a series of emails that were released based on Microsoft's uh, plan to buy Activision Blizzard and the FTC 
in the States. Um, we're looking to block the move, said, look, it, this is basically going to sew up the cloud gaming market. Uh, we're not, you know, we don't want to allow that. Um, so we want to see what Microsoft's plans are for the gaming sector. So Microsoft did a massive document dump. Uh, and guess what? Going through it, there, there was discussion about buying Nintendo. Um, never going to happen. Um, but I, it just goes to show what they were talking about internally. And um, there were also discussions of a, a refresh on the Xbox Series X. Um, again, a, a leaning in towards cloud gaming. Um, but again, you know, it's it's a, a merger that has been approved in the US. We'll see, uh, as far as I know, it is still blocked in the UK by the Competition and Markets Authority. I don't know uh, what the EU decision is off the top of my head. So it's it's a deal that is a long way off being solidified, but it just goes to show the kind of discussions that are being had internally in Microsoft about the gaming sector. But look, let's let's move on. We'll keep it. We'll keep an eye on it. Uh, let's uh, wrap up our news for this week with a quick congratulations. Uh, I don't remember back in January you were chatting to two guys at the BT Young Scientists exhibition, Shane O'Connor and Liam Carew, uh, and they ended up winning the thing. They they had a project. It was about the impact of second level education on teenage life. All right, <laughs> and it made me smile because you know you would expect teenagers doing a study on second level uh, education to be bleh, it's pants. We don't need it. Get away from school but their study kind of showed actually it was vital for the social development of students not not yeah, the educational and I thought it was a really <laughs> yeah I thought it was an excellent suggest uh, an excellent um selection as winner because in the last few years we've gotten very used to seeing I suppose hard science or hard technology winners uh, and certainly you know that's kind of the hallmark of, of the young scientists, but to see something coming from the social sciences, uh, occasionally referred to as soft science, um, and the real world impact on teenagers' lives, I thought was very refreshing. Uh, and I'm delighted to see it uh, secure um, succeed at European level. Yes, indeed. They've done very well. Shane and Liam have both come second in the EU contest for young scientists in, in Brussels. I mean, that's, I mean, winning at Ireland level is one thing, but to come second in all of Europe, that's, that's a phenomenal uh, achievement. Yeah, so well fantastic. done to Shane and Shane O'Connor and Liam Carr. Uh, that is it for our news this week. Niall, as always, thanks for keeping us up to date. This is Tech Radio from techcentral.ie. Get every episode of Tech Radio by clicking follow on your podcast player right now. Deep fakes are getting more common, more convincing and even easier to make. But just how convincing can they be and can they be strong enough to make us question our own memories? A study by researchers from software research centre Lero has set out to answer that very question. Uh, Kitson sat down with senior lecturer in applied psychology at UCC, Connor Lenehan, to learn more about it. The study of memory is basically as old as the field of psychology, going back to what the, the 1880s, uh, if not slightly before, because it's something we're all fascinated with. Um, and our understanding of it has changed quite a lot through the years um, to the point where memory is kind of seen as a narrative, which I think is where this kind of examination of deep fakes can come in. So tell us a little bit about that sort of salient point in the history of psychology where 
the expertise came to the fore looking at memory and its reliability? Sure. Um, so a lot of people might have the, the false assumption that um, memory works kind of like a video recorder. So we just, you know, as we experience things, it gets committed to memory and then we record it, or sorry, we recall it later uh, and, and it, it plays back consistently in the way that a video recorder would. So every time we remember it, it's the same. And that's, you know, we would hope memory uh, acts like that. But actually the science kind of tells us that it doesn't really act like that. Yeah. Um, there are many things that can affect how accurately we recall our memories. Uh, a lot of those are, are to do with the context in which we ask people questions. For example, there's just been a lot of uh, research um, down through, you know, for the last 50 years, trying to understand the ways in which uh, memories can be recalled in, in, in a way that's uh, unreliable, for example. So, so uh, you know, for example, there was a, was a really famous study where uh, they took uh, two groups of people, showed them the same video of a car crashing uh, into another car. And then they asked them, the two groups of people, they asked them two different questions. So the first group they asked, uh, what speed was the car going when it bumped into the other car? Uh, and then for the second group of people, they asked them, what speed was the car going when it smashed into the other car? Uh, and now they, so, you know, they these people are looking at the same video uh, and then they, what happens is they actually, in, in the results of that study, they, the group that were asked uh, the question about it, the car bumping, uh, they they estimated that the car, or they remembered that the car was going way, way, way slower than the uh, the group who were asked uh, what speed the car was going when it smashed into your car. So we can see that the way that we ask questions to people uh, affects how we recall the event. Um, so I suppose this is the kind of context uh, for the work that we did, where we are worried, you know, when, when people discuss the problems of, of uh, fake news, disinformation, all of that. And we are concerned about, you know, if people see things online that are false, are they going to remember them as if they are true? So even if they don't believe them at the time, if you're going to see something regularly, you might start to, uh, to, to recall them uh, in a way that you're like overconfident in how true it was. I think that's something we kind of find with nostalgia, that if people remember something awful often enough, then it becomes integrated into the zeitgeist. I mean, for years during the 80s, the Star Wars films were ridiculed. But then as people <laughs> saw them every year over Christmas, it just became this cultural phenomenon. And now Star Wars is is just part of, you know, home entertainment to this ridiculous degree on Disney+. Plus. It's a really good point, Dan. Yeah, so like every every time you watch Star Wars, you record new memories of yourself watching it. So you don't recall the film, you recall kind of your memories of watching the film. And and if those memories are associated with all the kind of fluffy, fuzzy things around Christmas, then, you know, your your feelings about the film will change. So that, that's a really good point, I think. Yeah, the, the power of, of nostalgia. So <laughs> when you presented people with your own problem, uh, looking at the power of deep fakes, how exactly did you approach that problem? Yeah, so um, we, we were interested in, obviously, like deep fakes are, they're, they're, people are worried about deep fakes because they are videos of things that never happened, right? So uh, we're, you know, through a bunch of different projects, we're kind of trying to look at, well, what are the situations in which people are, likely to, um, re, re, you know, interact with deepfakes in a problematic way. So, for example, uh, which way, 
which kind of circumstances or situations are people likely to recall, uh, you know, see the fake and recall that it, it, you know, that the event that they witnessed actually happened and, and have it changed their feelings about that event. So in our study, uh, we we focused on movies, you know, um, thought it was uh, an interesting and kind of lighter topic. A lot of the work on deepfakes is about like politics or it's about um, people's loss of trust in video evidence or your pornography or very kind of weighty topics. This one is a relatively easier one to approach uh, with, a, with a bunch of participants. So we were interested in, in movie remakes. We've seen a lot of movie remakes in recent years. So what we were interested in was showing participants uh, some movie roommate remakes and asking them, you know, do you remember seeing that video? Uh, so we showed them a bunch of different videos. Some of them were of real movie remakes. So we might think of like Charlie and the Chopper Factory or Carrie, which are real movie remakes that have come out recently. Uh, we also showed them uh, some fake movie remakes, which were... Um, for example, a, a remake of The Matrix with Will Smith as the lead role, uh, or a remake of um, a remake of Captain Marvel with Charlize Theron in the lead role, and um, so you know pe- people saw uh, clips of both films. So they saw a clip of the of either that real remake or a clip of um, the the fake one, and they were asked, you know, do you recall seeing this before? Um, and then the w- Sorry, and, and we also so some of the videos, they, some of the uh, movies, they saw the actual clips of them, and other movies, they they were just given a text description saying, "Here, there has been a, a real, uh, sorry, there has been a remake of the Matrix with Will Smith in the lead role. Do you recall seeing that film? Did you enjoy it? You know these kinds of questions." So, um, uh, what we were interested in then was was two questions. You know, would they actually remember seeing? Would they report that they had actually seen the, the film that didn't actually exist? Um, and would they um, be more likely to report that they saw it if they saw the deep fake video than if they just saw the text description? So, it allows us to answer a couple of different questions. So, in looking then at the efficacy of video over text. We, we often hear that if you, you know, take in something through more than one media, it becomes yeah. easier to learn. Uh, in your experience, though, through this study, did it matter whether people read the description or watched the video at all? Was there any difference between them? Yeah, it's interesting because a, lo- a lot of the, again, a lot of the discussion about deepfakes have kind of talked about how they are particularly concerning because, as you said, it's, it's audiovisual rather than just video or just audio or just text. Uh, in our study, we found that um, lots of people did report that they saw the deepfake uh, video previously. So, for example, 73 people um, thought they had previously watched the uh, Shirley's Tehran remake of Captain Marvel, which is uh, like a huge, it's a, it's, a, it's a large number of people. Um, and, and 43% said that they'd seen uh, the Indiana Jones uh, remake with Chris Pratt. But the interesting thing was that it didn't really matter whether they had just been given that as a text description or whether they actually saw a clip, a deep fake clip of the movie. So essentially what we found was really high rates of believability for the remakes, regardless of whether it was a text uh, description or if it was uh, a clip of a, a video. 
That's really interesting because when when you look at those sort of people that showed up in the deep fake videos, they're kind of things that, you know, if it was presented to you, you go, oh, I'd watch that. So <laughs> there seems to be this ability of people just to fill in the blanks. Yeah, I mean, there is, there, I suppose we were kind of thinking about this afterwards. I mean, there is an element of believability there because there is, um, there has been quite a lot of movie remakes recently. So I suppose the chances of any one video being remade is kind of, it's these days it's more likely than it was previously. You know, we, we just kind of see a lot of it. And, but it's interesting that you, you say, yeah, um, that you would like to, uh, to see some of these uh, remakes. And because like the second part of our study, we actually asked our participants um, the second part was qualitative. So we were kind of in- interested in people's kind of responses, you know, open responses. So we asked them like, if you could actually, if you had, if you had the ability to recast any movie that you, um, uh, th- that you were interested in using deep fakes, for example, if you wanted to see Nicolas Cage in the Godfather, um, then, uh, you know, would you use that function if it was available? You know, if, if that was available, that you could just decide which which actor was in which film, is that something that you would be interested in? So we asked our participants uh, that question, uh, and then we got a, really a whole range of answers. I mean, some people were quite positive. You know, we've seen, for example, some of the reasoning there is that, um, you know, we've seen with the Me Too movement that a lot of actors... Um, you know, when an actor gets cancelled, then it becomes kind of unacceptable to kind of say that you like those films or to watch them uh, just because, you know, the, I suppose the bad behaviour of the actor gets associated with, and you don't, you don't, you don't kind of no longer want to enjoy watching it. So people kind of said, well, you know, wouldn't it be good if you could just put in like a nice actor in place of, of the one that we, that we've decided, you know, we shouldn't be, uh, you know, supporting their work anymore. So that was kind of the positive use case that people came up with. But most of the time, people said they really wouldn't enjoy uh, the ability to, you know, edit their, is or you know, et, yeah, personalize their movies in in the way that that we suggested. There, I mean, there's a whole load of reasons uh, for that. Like from quite interesting ones to do it, like you know, respect and fairness towards the actors. There's that question of consent that comes up with you know, deep fake uh, uh, movies in other contexts, as in. You know, um, you know, actors not consenting to being in particular roles that maybe they don't agree with, uh, respecting the, the filmmakers' visions, undermining. They, uh, w- one of the more interesting answers actually was was to do with um, undermining of movies as a shared social experience. So there's that idea, like we, you know, movies we don't just watch them on our own or or, or just with our friends. We also want to, you know, watch them and then we want to talk about them with other people, but like. There's a feeling that if you could just put any actor into any film like that, then, you know, you wouldn't really have the ability to to have those kind of more social discussions about films because you, everyone would have seen a different version of it. So, yeah, so I, I'd say, uh, yeah, potentially a long-winded answer to your question, but I, I, I think a mixed bag in that respect, but most people coming up with quite a lot of reasons why they don't think it's a good idea. <laughs> So ultimately then, people do seem to have uh, an element of maybe not scepticism, but, you know, they're they're willing to try things, but at the same time, they are still capable of recognizing the real from the fake. 
looking at things towards the future, do you think people will still apply that same filter, but using slightly different mental tools, particularly as fakes get more convincing? For example, you know, you would think there's no way Robert De Niro is going to do a horror movie, but here I'm watching a, a movie where Robert De Niro is the the surprise uh, surprise killer, or you know the new guy behind the Jason hockey mask, or something like that. Um, you know, there there will be a natural, um, uh, I suppose, stepping outside that willing suspension of disbelief. Do you think this could become sort of a a, a new um, a new a new horizon? basically, in choosing the films that we watch or whether we engage in films in the same way. If you realize that not, there's no way that actor would take that role, uh, it ultimately hurts the movie. It's, it, it's a good point. Uh, I think, um, I think, yeah, anything like that, that's going to break your suspension of disbelief probably is bad for the movie watching experience. You know, you know, you might find this funny, but it, you won't, you probably wouldn't engage with it in the same way that you kind of get lost in, uh, you know, really well done movies. And I think that's really what people are concerned about. They're like, movies are an art form. They're, you know, carefully crafted every shot. So then to kind of carelessly just put, to just drop in Robert De Niro where you don't expect him, you know, it seems a bit like it's kind of disrespecting the rest of the work that's gone into creating that experience. So that, mm-hmm. that's, I suppose that's what um, our participants would have uh, talked about in in the in their responses in, in the study. There, There is... There's an interesting related point, though, kind of bigger point about deepfakes there in that I think one of the reasons why people are particularly concerned with about deepfakes at the moment is that we just up until this point, it hasn't really been feasible to edit videos to kind of falsify them. So, you know, if, you know, we don't really, you know, where maybe with photographs, if you see a surprising photograph, you see Robert De Niro doing something surprising in a photograph you already have this kind of automatic jump to, oh, that's Photoshop. You know Photoshop exists, mm-hmm. you know how it works, you know how relatively easy it is to use Photoshop. Uh, and so you're kind of saying it's quite feasible that somebody has Photoshopped that. So up, up until this point, I think, I think generally people don't have that with videos. We don't see a video and kind of think, oh, that, that could quite easily have, you know, been created uh, with software uh, because, you know, it hasn't really been possible up until now. Um, so th- we're at an interesting point and it's, it's possible that, you know, people in the next coming years, you know, I think it would be good if people probably learned that lesson quite quickly. And then, you know, then I think at that point, we wouldn't see this narrative about how deepfakes are more problematic than other forms of false media, falsified media. You know, it would just be another example of it. You know, if people were on, when they saw videos, were on the, the lookout for, you know, or we're aware that they are falsifiable quite easily now. And that was Niall Kitchen chatting with Connor Lenehan, Senior Lecturer in Applied Psychology at UCC, about the study with the Software Research Centre, Lero. This is Tech Radio. That's it for our show this week. Before we go, time for just one more thing. Let's roll Mr. Steve Jobs back down from heaven. Thanks, Dusty. Other stories online we didn't have time to talk about in the podcast today include Stripe passing a milestone with Irish businesses, researchers from Insight and DCU lend their expertise to the Premier League, and why generative AI is driving security spending. You'll find all those and more online at techcentral.ie. 
Thanks, Steve. We're back again next Friday on RTE Radio 1 Extra, or you can get new episodes automatically by clicking follow on your podcast player. On to next time from myself, Dusty Rhodes, and from Nile Kitson. Take care. Tech Radio is produced by DustPod.io. From me, Artemis, goodbye. Goodbye.